So this is our third, third Sunday back for in-person attendance. And I just cannot tell you what a difference it makes and how good it is. I, I miss doing this so much, seeing you face-to-face -face and having this time um, like this, just so different and so better. Um, Holly Hudley is off this week. She's on a road trip, and um, she'll be back next week with um, a class we already realized that we've bitten off more than we can chew, but we're going to do it. So this time today is dedicated to our deepening our awareness of who we are and uh, understanding of who we are, deepen, deepening our awareness and understanding of sacred mystery, and also strengthening our commitment to treat others as if they were us, because they are. So I want everyone to know, and Olivia, you can change the slide, that no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. So the man sitting next to me uh, is Dr. Jim Bankston. Jim was the senior pastor of this church for 19 years. He's now pastor emeritus of this church. First time I think, I think we've ever had that. Yeah, I think so. So on um, March the 7th, 1996, I quit teaching a class that I was teaching here called Mind and Spirit. Yeah. And took a four-year leave of absence where um, I got some training in union analysis and did some in-depth work. And in that process, I continued to come to St. Paul. Sherry was in the choir. And during that time, I, I deepened my discernment that my calling was to be a teacher. And Jim and I talked about that a lot. And um, I said that was what I wanted to do. And Jim said, I want you to come back and teach a class here. Yeah. And I said, I'm not going to come unless you pay me. <laughs> and Jim said, I can't do that unless you become a Methodist. <laughs> which I thought would be easy to do. Yeah. I switched my credentials from Southern Baptist to American Baptist on a handshake. Yeah. I mean, I sent them my credentials, and they yeah. said somebody down interviewed me, but I... Um, yeah, we're, we're a little more discerning. We <laughs> take a little I, more care. I would say you're a little more OCD, <laughs> but... <laughs> a, little, a little bit of that, too. So I had to go back to seminary. I remember when uh, we had lunch with Bishop Hearn, at a restaurant on Montrose, yeah. and it, that was a moment of incredible entanglement. Even found out that he and I were at Harvard at the same time. Huh. And I remember all the signs said, I want you to accept my ordination, and he said, I will, but I can't appoint you as an elder because you haven't had Methodist history, doctrine, and policy. Yep. I might have to appoint you somewhere, and I thought, oh, Lord, I'm going to go to Viter for sure. <laughs> <laughs> And then this guy said, well, Bishop, I wouldn't mind having him appointed to St. Paul. And I realized then that they had cooked this up <laughs> a long time ago. So, Jim, I want to read you something. At any rate, Jim is responsible for my being here. And I, I was looking back for, through some stuff the other day, and I found a pastoral prayer that I wrote. I will read part of it. I gave it on June 13, 2013. That was your last Sunday here yeah. as senior pastor. And I said, we're grateful for Jim's ministry among us, his years of hard work, his unwavering integrity, his ability to stand alongside us during times of deep loss and profound joy, 
his love of Jesus and faithfulness to his teachings. Thank you. So, now um, I've got some trick questions for you before we're done. He's got a uh, stand full of notes, and I don't have anything over here, so (laughs) I do not know what's coming. (laughs) All right, I gave you a little idea. One question you told me, and you may not get to that one. So I got a couple. I don't want to know, but I will tell you that um, the thing that is uppermost on everybody's mind right now it is. what in the world is going to happen to the Methodist Church? I mean, we have, for those of you who are not aware, the Methodist Church has this document called the Book of Discipline. And in the Book of Discipline, there is a clause that says that we do not believe that the practice of homosexuality is compatible with Christian teaching. There's been a move for years to get that removed from the Book of Discipline. And now it looks like we're going to have a fight over it. That is correct. Uh, first of all, let me say, uh, delighted to be here today, and it was a great day's work when I had lunch with uh, Bishop Hearn and Bill, and we welcomed him back to St. Paul's, appointed uh, as a kind of a local pastor, local pastor, I think, in the beginning, and eventually had your credentials accepted, and you are now an elder in the United Methodist Church and been holding forth ever since. This is one of the great things about the church is this class. So uh, it was uh, uh, not a hard call to welcome him back, and I'm so glad you're, you're meeting again. I, I talked to a friend of mine who is a pastor of uh, one of our larger United Methodist churches in town, and I said, how's your attendance? What's it like trying to get people back? And he said, you know, we're about 30% of what we were before the pandemic hit, and that's one of our large, very active churches. So it's just going to take a while for Sunday school classes, for churches in general. It'll take at least September, maybe Christmas, and uh, we may never regain where we were, any of us, but we're all worried about that. But it's so good to see so many of you here today. And uh, invite your friends. Uh, We'll get back. It's just going to take a while. Some people are still cautious. Some people got out of the habit. Some people are watching on the live stream. So things are different. Mm -hmm. Now, about the... United Methodist Church, uh, you know, in 1972, we put that little phrase in our book of discipline. It was actually, it, it started out, uh, you know, the 1960s were tumultuous, and uh, we tried to deal at General Conference, the decision-making body of the church, with uh, the issues that were emerging in our society. And uh, we dealt with the subject of the way we referred to it at the time was homosexuality and uh, really made fairly positive statements about being included. And as almost an afterthought, uh, a layperson from uh, the San Antonio area added a phrase that got accepted and passed by the General Conference, which said, comma, although. We do not consider the practice of homosexuality compatible with Christian teaching, or we consider it incompatible with Christian teaching, I believe the way it's said. And so that that has been a part of our book of discipline since 1972, and uh, I have been a delegate to General Conference. I have uh, worked on committees that has tried to change that, and we have not been able to change it in the United Methodist Church. I read recently that according to a Pew Research uh, statistic, which is usually pretty accurate, uh, 70% of um, the American populace now support same-gender wedding. 70%. That's up from the 30s. 
not very long ago. So society has changed their minds about this. Individuals have changed their minds. Uh, people are moving uh, toward a more inclusive stance. We, we have some old liners in the United Methodist Church that are not going to let this die, and they're going to split the church over it. Uh, and it, it's going to happen. We have a process through General Conference which had to be delayed. We should have met last year in 2020. We are a global church, and that contributes somewhat to our situation in that uh, we have very conservative uh, Christian communities in Africa and places in Asia, and lots of them. It's almost 40% of the vote at General Conference, so it's a lot. Uh, of the vote that comes from uh, some of the more conservative areas. And we, uh, we should have met in 2020. We couldn't because we couldn't get people together because of COVID. We were to meet this year. That's already been canceled. It was to be in August and September of 2021. People from the, the global community still cannot travel, so we can't have general conference. It is scheduled for next year, uh, 2022 in which uh, it'll be back on the table. And there have been various proposals of various uh, ways of dividing the church, uh, the United Methodist Church, between those who are inclusive of uh, different uh, expressions of human sexuality and those who are not, those who want to preserve the uh, what is called in, in their terminology the more traditional point of view. And we're going to split over that. It's going to happen. And it, it's just a matter of how it happens. Uh, a year from now, the momentum will be, will be building, and uh, you'll want to watch for it. And it'll, it should happen in August, September of 2022. What comes out of General Conference will determine uh, what happens in local churches. Uh, in this, uh, you know, every church... There, there, already, there already is a name for the new expression. It's called the Global Methodist Church. The GMCs uh, will be the more conservative uh, wing of the church. And, and the United Methodist Church will stay. And then those that are left will change the book of discipline. Uh, but uh, a lot will exit, especially in Texas and especially in this part of Texas. Unbelievably so. Uh, but it, it's going to happen. So what will happen to this church? Well, you know, I, I think uh, this church has a, a long history of uh, welcome and hospitality and openness toward... Uh, Thanks to you. Well, and, and, and others. There have been a, a, a lot of uh, uh, encouragement through the years, and uh, I have no doubt that uh, it, if it comes to a vote, which it may, it may have to, every local church may have to vote. You may have to vote. If, if our conference uh, joins as a whole to the new denomination of the global Methodist church, which is the more conservative wing, then those that don't want to be a part of that will have to vote to opt out and remain a part of the United Methodist Church. And I'm, I have no doubt that that's what will happen here at, at, uh, at St. Paul's. Um, you know, Jeff McDonald will support that and uh, the membership will. It won't be 100%, but uh, probably close. So I remember after that general conference, which was a debacle about what, what could happen and so much turmoil, there was a full-page ad that was taken out in the Houston Chronicle where a 1,000 local United Methodists 
clergy and lay people signed a petition saying that we did not support what went on at General Conference. Right. And over 200 of those signatures were from St. Paul's. Yes, that's right. And, uh, you know, at that General Conference, which was a special conference in 2019, we had the option at that time to vote in a big tent which would have included everyone and simply allowed people to disagree. And if your church did not want to receive uh, a fully ordained uh, gay pastor, you wouldn't have to. And if you did not want to perform same-gender weddings, you wouldn't have to. But we could stay together in the United Methodist Church and allow us to grow into a place where it would be more accepted. Uh, that did not pass by a few votes, by like 56 votes out of 900 and something votes. And uh, so what passed was, you know, a doubling down on what was already there, and, and that's gotten us to where we are now, moving toward a, a full-blown schism. It's happened before in churches, and uh, it's happened before in the Methodist church. We split over uh, slavery, and uh, it took us 100 years to get back together. Hmm. But this church, you know, when the vote comes, show up and vote. <laughs> you know, be there, be represented, and bring all your friends. But it will be a strong vote. This church will remain United Methodist, and then we'll have some work to do as whatever's left of the United Methodist Church um, begins to uh, rebuild a new identity. Um, the irony of it is uh, the, the new church... Uh, that is more conservative is primarily located in the southern states. Uh, old white guys voting with Africans uh, to separate the church. It's a strange thing. And, and that's, uh, that's where we find ourselves. Well, now when I did have to take Methodist history, doctrine, and policy, which I kind of still resent, but... You're supposed to know a little something about uh, the... But um, I, I, one of the things that John Wesley did that was kind of genius was had this thing where the, the, this church, the property of this, this church, doesn't belong to St. Paul's. It belongs to the Texas Annual Conference. It's even larger than that. It belongs to the United Methodist Church. Yeah, there is a trust clause that we hold. And, and the Episcopal Church is like that. Um, we hold the property in trust on behalf of the United Methodist Church. But they'll have to change that at General Conference to allow people to exit. And it's already a, a possible, you know, Bering Church left just a couple of weeks ago to join the United Church of Christ, took their property with them. Um, so it's possible to do that. Uh, my reading of the discipline is a, 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 an entire annual conference cannot leave uh, unless General Conference makes that possible. Uh, our bishop disagrees with that. He thinks the annual conference can leave the way it is now. I don't think he'll take a vote, though, until after General Conference. Hmm. Yeah. So you're hopeful? Yeah, of sorts, yeah, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Jim, in your ministry... And I tease about going to seminary, uh, going back to seminary. Actually, it was interesting, and I met George Atkinson. I met you know a lot of really great people in that in that process. I was just with a lot of younger people who were going through seminary, and when I said some things when we would go to 
Lakeview and have meetings with the Board of Ordained Ministry and I would say things. A lot of the candidates for ministry would distance themselves from me <laughs> because they didn't want to associate with this heretic who was saying things about the Methodist Church. But you went to seminary. What was the, the big thing that seminary did not prepare you for as far as ministry is concerned? I, uh, I loved my seminary experience. I went to Perkins at SMU, and I like to say I was a pretty raw recruit. <laughs> I had a lot to learn. I had a, uh, you know, grew up in a small town. Uh, my father had a fourth grade education and was a used car salesman. <laughs> in his later life, during my life, uh, before he died, while I was in college, uh, he had his own little dealership in that little town. So, um, you know, I, there was a lot I didn't know, and I'm eternally grateful. I'm still on the executive board at Perkins School of Theology. Wow. So uh, I, uh, I really treasure my seminary experience. They taught me to think deeply about matters of faith, uh, to face the questions that were emerging in society. I went there in 1970, so all of the things emerging from the 60s and throughout the 70s, um, we tried to uh, understand in in perspective of uh, a deeper understanding of our faith. So I really treasure my seminary experience. I, I would say uh, probably what they uh, maybe didn't, uh, they can't teach you everything. There's a lot of things they can't teach you. But um, I think it was uh, how messy life is, you know. <laughs> um, just uh, life is hard. People do terrible things to other people. People have awful things happen to them. People make bad decisions. And life gets extremely messy. And uh, trying to sort out where the grace, faith, hope, and love is and grace in those circumstances is always a challenge. In, I, in my first appointment as a senior pastor, um, I did a short work as an associate, but my first appointment as a senior pastor, small town in East Texas. Uh, I'd been there a few years, a couple of years, and on the, the, the Friday before we received our um, confirmation class into the church on that Sunday, a young man in the confirmation class killed himself took a 22 rifle and put it under his chin and killed himself. Mm. And uh, he, he lived with his father and stepmother. It was a wholesome environment. They, they really were, the young man was just troubled. Um, and the reason I mention that is life is messy, but uh, there was another young man in that class, and both of these two young men uh, were new to the community and had gotten to know each other and that was literally 40 years ago uh, this spring when that happened. And I'm Facebook friends with this other young man that was a part of that community. And at that date when the young man died, he had gone uh, to the cemetery where the headstone was of the young man who had killed himself and taken a picture of the headstone and told of that experience. That had been 40 years ago. And this young man, it was still a part of his experience trying to process 
what had happened on that day. So, you know, life is messy, and, and we, we just try to find, uh, I don't, I've always thought you shouldn't make life any harder for people uh, than it already is, and we have to find grace for people. So uh, uh, they tried to teach us that in seminary, but they cannot begin to plumb the depths of the complexity that life throws at people. So I take the Christian Century, yeah. and they have a column, an article in there about once every quarter, some um, great theologian or outstanding person, and that's in the theme of how my mind has changed. So after leaving seminary and being in pastoral ministry, what's the biggest mind change that you've made? Um, you know, I, I just share the first thing that comes to mind. I guess that's usually what you ought to share. Not always, but usually. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <clears throat> uh, but, you know, what came to mind when you said that was uh, I care less about uh, doctrine. I, I care less about uh, what is the right thing to believe or say. I care less about having an organized uh, theology. And I've gotten more simple in terms of uh, those few things that you can affirm that are life-affirming for people, that are life-oriented and um, so I guess my mind has changed. Uh, I was probably a pretty good rule keeper, you know, early on. And uh, my wife probably tell you I still am in most ways. Um, but, um, you know, arbitrary uh, structures of belief that uh, people must conform to. We, we have basics that we affirm, and I, I do, but... Uh, so many of the, you know, we don't want to be uh, so legalistic that we're not life-giving. And I think my mind has changed in that way uh, mm -hmm. more than anything else that comes to mind right now. By the way, happy Father's Day. Thank you. It is Father's Day, yeah. And I know your family's very important to you. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I have a list of other questions I want to ask, but uh, if you have a question for Dr. Bankston, if you will raise your hand, I'll, and I will hear it, I'll repeat it because we don't have a mic in the audience. Anybody have a question for him? Yes. What's going to happen to the seminary process? What's going to happen to the seminary process? You know, uh, all of the institutions, including Methodist Hospital, Southwestern University, where you and I both went to school, uh, other colleges and universities, any institution, Methodist Home, Methodist Mission Home, all of those things that have some affiliation, some are owned by the church. SMU is owned by the church. Southwestern is not, but we have an affiliation with the church. All of those institutions that have an affiliation with the church will also have to make a decision. Uh, will we continue to be affiliated with the church at all? And if so, which segment of the church will we affiliate with? And the seminaries are primarily setting themselves up to take any student from any religious background. They need students these days, frankly. And it's already pretty eclectic. There are people from other denominations that attend our seminaries. And so when the split comes, they will take people from 
both wings of the church and other denominations and train them to be um, pastoral theologians in church settings and other settings. So uh, they will also have to affiliate with one wing or the other or make some statement because we have 12 United Methodist seminaries right now and uh, they'll have to make some kind of decision about who they affiliate with. But, you know, it's an it's a intellectual um, environment, so most of those, I can't think of a single seminary that won't stay with the United Methodist Church. That's part of the United Methodist system right now. So when you say they will have to decide, that means their trustees will have to their decide. Their trustees will have to decide. And that, that'll be true about uh, SMU. You know, as, the seminary is owned by SMU, so uh, it's a part of the SMU campus. Not all, Some of our seminaries are freestanding, and some of them are associated with universities. So could the trustees of this church make that decision for the church, or if we come to that? It, it'll be a larger body. It will be a church conference. When, uh, when I was teaching at Southwestern Seminary thinking that was my future, there was talk among the Southern Baptists of a split. Yep. I mean, Southern Baptists are great at splitting. <laughs> and I asked uh, one of my colleagues on the faculty, if the denomination splits, what, what side are you going with? And he said, I'm going with the side that carries the retirement program. Yeah, that's... <laughs> And, and we've, we've already taken care of that. Uh, when we split, uh, you take your retirement with you. So if you go to the new denomination or stay in the old one, and you know, that's a pretty big deal, really. So, um, yeah, we've, we've made that. That's going to happen. We're going to take care of ourselves. <laughs> Anybody else? Question? Yes, way back there. You understand that question? I'm going to let you rephrase it for me. <laughs> uh, it, it, you're talking about, uh, if I heard correctly, can, is there a theological redemption for politics to bring politics into the church? No. No. Uh, yeah, that, that one may be above my pay grade. The, uh, <laughs> um, you know, politics is a, a, probably a necessary evil. Um, we just need good people in politics. Uh, you have to have people that make decisions. Uh, you have to have some structure and organization. And, uh, you know, we, the system is dependent upon the people that uh, make those decisions and run things. And we just have to be careful about uh, the people that are representing us now. Jim, you, you probably remember well when uh, we hosted here at St. Paul's a, f um, a forum, uh, an event where Stanley Auerwas came to speak here. And um, he, you described him as an equal opportunity theological offender. Yeah. 
I mean, and he, you know, I was in the Christian Century article that I was mentioning to you about how my mind has changed. Arawas is quoted. He has since moved to Scotland from Duke because he felt like he he didn't have the freedom here to say what he wanted to say. Uh, by the way, Michael, he's a Southwestern graduate also, uh, Stanley Arawas, and uh, Texas uh, kid, grew up in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. His father was a bricklayer, and Time Magazine called him a while back, uh, it's been a while back, maybe 20 years ago, the best theologian in America. Yeah. Uh, we were connected with a group called the Foundation for Contemporary Theology. I would suspect yeah. some of you were involved in that. Mm -hmm. And so uh, when they would bring speakers to town, we turned out to be a good place to host it, and we kind of cooperated. And uh, we had lots of very interesting speakers through the years with our connection with uh, with that group. Wes Seeleger, you uh -huh. know, started that. Some that goes beyond. Wes and I were, were good friends. Yeah, many of you in the room don't remember him, but uh, so we did have Stanley Auerwas, and uh, yeah, he he was uh, a pretty radical thinker. Yeah, mm -hmm. he he was on the faculty at Duke for a while, and he tried, he liked to stir things up. And he did. And he did. You know, I was, I, I'm fond of quoting a professor in seminary who said, there are two things that you cannot talk about in church. One is politics, and the other is religion. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> that sometimes proves to be the case. But politics, you know, I was, had a cartoon that showed on the announcement slides uh, last week where this old wizened guy is saying, if you are ever lost, here's a tip. Just start talking politics and somebody will come and argue with you. Yeah. So, it's a very prickly, divisive time for us. It really is. Uh, yeah, we, uh, I do sense you know, that, that we are very divided uh, politically. Um, there's not a lot of middle ground. There's not a lot of uh, common ground. Uh, we, we have to regain that somehow, but uh, we may be just barely inching toward it. That's my sense. Well, the lid has been taken off of people uh, feeling free to say inappropriate things and harmful things and believe all sorts of nonsense. Okay, anybody else got a question for Dr. Bankston? Yes, here's one. Yes. So the question is, what's going to happen to the national boards like church and society, missions, and that sort of thing? Yeah, I, uh, I'm still on the uh, a committee with the Board of Church and Society. I meet with them uh, on a regular basis. Even this week, had a Zoom call with them. Um, they've got to make those same decisions. Uh, the, the reality is... Uh, the global church, the, the global Methodist church, the new the split-off denomination doesn't want them. They want pensions, but as far as the Board of Church and Society, uh, Board of Global Missions, uh, Board of Discipleship, uh, things like that, that will stay with the United Methodist Church. And we've, we'll have to revamp them a little bit. It takes a lot of money to run those um, boards. And uh, there won't be as much money. So uh, they will stay with the United Methodist Church, almost certainly, in what form is yet to be seen. So, Jim, it's unavoidable that the GMC, 
the pickup truck denomination. That's right. Pickup done. Yeah, I don't want to offend anybody, but I never did like GMCs. <laughs> <laughs> My father was a Ford dealer, so yeah. <laughs> so um, it's it's going to be impossible, I think, for this new denomination to avoid being branded as the denomination around the sexual exclusion issue. That is true, and they will try to rebrand it around a kind of a doctrinal purity, uh, back to basics, uh, uh, welcoming of all people. They've already written a book of discipline that is welcoming of all people, but does not affirm the fullness of inclusion of all people, including ordination and marriage. So they want to try to present themselves as uh, welcoming and magnanimous, but uh, it's going to be really hard, like you say, to not be branded that way. Many want them to be branded that way. Many within the movement, that we're going to take our stand. That's who we are. Uh, we think the Bible's clear, they will say, and we're going to affirm what we think the Bible says about this. What do you think it means to the Texas Annual Conference or to the grouping of churches that like St. Paul's in the Texas Annual Conference that we've lost Bering? Well, it's a tragedy. Uh, you know, Bering had a 150-year-or-so history and uh, took the initiative to uh, become a safe place for uh, LGBTQ plus community for years. The pastor over there, Diane McGeehee, is not only an ordained United Methodist preacher, but a Harvard-educated lawyer. We lost a good person. Mm. And we lost, uh, she moved with them to the United Church of Christ. We lost a great church. They supported everything the conference and district did. They sent campers and counselors to Lakeview. They supported the district program. Um, you know, we lost a good church that provided uh, a great ministry. You, you can hardly go to Bering without crying. Uh, because of the inclusiveness of the ministry that they include there. So uh, we, we lost a, a strong church. A good, it, it, it's not the largest church, but it had a great history, wonderful people, great pastor. It's a tragedy that we lost them. So um, movement that began a number of years ago in this Texas Annual Conference, I think it was started by Susan Spruce with your blessing. Right called the Breaking the Silence Movement. Right. And, and didn't that develop into the Reconciling Congregation Movement? It did. Uh, I came to St. Paul's in 1995, and in 1996, Susan Spruce, member of our congregation, anybody remember her at all? Yeah. Uh, I know Terry and Linda Wood and others, uh, came to me and said, you know, we've got to do something. We must provide an opportunity for people to come together who are supportive of the LGBT community and what can we do and it was her idea she said let's have an event at annual conference it's interesting we're having a, uh, the uh, next Sunday uh, a pride picnic after church I think we'll move it inside because of the weather but uh, they had asked some of us to come up with um, uh, trivia questions to be read and one of them is going to be uh, who started the movement that became uh, Breaking the Silence and Reconciling Ministries and so forth. So you'll have a hint if any of you attend on who that was. But Susan uh, came to me and said, uh, you know, we have to do something. Let's have a luncheon 
an annual conference and call it Stories from the Heart. Stories from the Heart. And we'll let uh, gay people and parents of gay people tell their stories. And let's see who comes. And she said, I need somebody to moderate it. <laughs> and I said, I literally said to her, well, if you can't find anybody else, I'll do it. And she didn't find anybody else. So <laughs> nobody else would do it. Uh, so uh, I agreed to moderate. And, you know, we had 50 or 60 people at that first uh, luncheon uh, in 1996. And it's grown into what became the Breaking the Silence and what is now part of the Reconciling Ministries uh, Network. And uh, it started because of a member of this church came to the pastor of this church and said, we have to do something. And she was the driving force behind it. Now, you know, I had a, at that luncheon that we had in 1996, you know, not everybody was on the same page in agreement with what we were doing. But um, uh, one of our pastors, who was a local pastor, not seminary trained, great big guy, uh, well over six feet, you know, close to 300 pounds. His other job was a guard at TD, TDC, Texas Department of Corrections. He was a prison guard, came up to me after that, and he said, you know, I think you're right. I think we need to be more gracious and more inclusive of people that are not like us. I thought, you know, it was worth doing this. <laughs> so I wonder if you all realize what you're hearing. The leadership that this man provided for the full inclusion movement within the United Methodist Church. This is just amazing. All right, uh, Robert. I think I heard that. Um, Can you repeat it? Well, well Barry, if we, if we split, is there a possibility that Bering would come back to be a part of the United Methodist Church? I doubt it. It would be possible. But, uh, you know, if they could have just hung in there a little bit longer, the backstory is, you know, they have been foregoing doing weddings for years because they couldn't do them in their church. Their pastor couldn't do them. They would have had their credentials stripped from them. Uh, if You would have been brought to a trial and put on trial in a church trial for performing a same-gender wedding, whether it was in the church or somewhere else. So they've... Uh, I've attended weddings that they that are members of their of that church, but they weren't at the church; they were at other places, and um, so they had s s several couples at the present time that wanted to be married by their pastor in Bering Church, and their pastor couldn't do it unless she risked being brought to trial and stripped of her credentials for doing it, and they didn't want that to happen, so they left. I doubt they'll come back. So will you tell the story, uh, give us the background of the story that uh, got a standing ovation at your retirement ceremony here. Uh, Bill Taylor told a story, and, and I tried to repeat it. I taught the Living Faith class or was available a couple Sundays ago or last Sunday. Bill Taylor told a story about something you did at General Conference. Or tell, tell us that story. Um. Bill, Bill Taylor spoke here at Ordinary Life a few right. years ago. Uh, 
Bill's been a good friend of mine for years. We're still great friends. We go fly fishing together two or three times a year with Tom sometimes. And um, uh, Bill had been just kind of a, a hardworking pastor, doing his job, uh, didn't really think much about uh, the issue of homosexuality. And then um, his oldest son, revealed to them that he was gay. And it changed his life, changed the, the family's life. And he's a wonderful pastor now in the United Church of Christ in Naples, Florida, uh, one of their largest churches in, in that denomination. Bill's son. Bill's son, yeah. Bill's retired, still part of the United Methodist Church, but retired. But uh, so it, it, it changed his life. And... Uh, so at the general conference, I believe it was in, uh, I think it was 2004 in uh, Pittsburgh. You know, all these years through these general conferences, we'd have various kinds of demonstrations from uh, supporters, uh, primarily from LGBT community people who would, you know, march on the, the floor of general conference, encourage people to uh, uh, support more inclusive language, always very respectful. Sometimes they just pass out water at the door, pass out uh, scripture passages that were supportive of their position. And at the general conference in Pittsburgh in 2004, um, they uh, came into the conference and started singing. And, and they said this, uh, the bishops allowed this to happen. It wasn't a hostile takeover. It was a, it was a, a demonstration that people knew were, was coming and they were uh, going to sing and march through the congregation, the 900 and something delegates. I was a delegate and, you know, they just said, if, if you're supportive of what we're doing, stand up. And so I stood up. There's not much to ask. <laughs> so, uh, But you were the only one. The only one from Texas, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, um, uh, Dawson Taylor, who was a lay person in the church at the time, was a lay delegate to annual conference, had already come out to his parents and close friends, but the delegation didn't know her. He had never been lay. He was that kind of leader. He was a great leader, was elected as a lay person to general conference as a very young person, was sitting right behind me, and he couldn't stand up. So I stood up for him mm. and a lot of others, but... So um, I used to watch a program called Inside the Actor's Studio. You know what's coming. <laughs> and uh, I, now I don't watch network news, but I do get my news from a program uh, called The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. <laughs> <laughs> and Stephen Colbert has developed the Colbert Questionnaire. So, uh, based on those two things, I've developed some questions to ask you, Jim, that are going to help us look deeply into your soul. <laughs> What's the best sandwich? What's the best sandwich? Um, I, I like uh, pastrami and cheese. Okay. No wrong answers for that. Yeah. What is your favorite thing to do with your free time? Well, this will probably seem a little trite. I do like to play golf. I do like to fly fish. 
and I like to spend time with my family. You know, that's, uh, and we like to travel. My wife's in the audience today. She could contradict some of these things probably. And maybe she has is. Has remained the, silent. She is, maybe she's the one that. that she ought to answer some of these questions. Could answer let's this. don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> What's the one thing you own that you should really throw out? You know, we, uh, <laughs> we have a uh, kind of a catastrophic situation in that Sandy likes to buy things and I don't like to throw things away. So, <laughs> so she could probably give you a long list of things I ought to throw away. Um, I, you know, I, I still have all my papers from seminary that I wrote. Oh, I know, that's awful. I ought to throw those away. I, you know, I've got uh, all my old sermons. I to keep those. You know, Muzan Biggs, who was a great preacher, uh, was at uh, Boston Avenue in Tulsa for a long time. Really a great preacher. I liked him a lot. And he told me one time that uh, every three or four years, he'd put all of his sermons in a box and put them out by the trash and let them haul them off. So that's probably what I ought to do. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that. Have you ever asked anybody for their autograph? Uh, yes. Uh, I'm trying to think who now. Uh, probably some musicians like, uh, I don't know, Chris Christopherson or <laughs> Willie Nelson or somebody. Who do we have, Sandy? I don't know. Um, What's your favorite movie? Oh, I've got, I love movies. Uh, this one may surprise you, but one of my favorite movies is uh, No Country for Old Men. Really? Yeah. Yeah. It is pretty brutal. Complexities galore there, you know, of a good man, somewhat good, being corrupted, and of a total psychopath, and the forces that interplay, and the one that's trying to keep order, not knowing what to make of it. Uh, yeah, I like places in the heart. Oh, I knew you were going to say that. Yeah, I like Tender Mercies. That's yeah. an old movie. I like um, uh, 1917. That's a fairly recent movie. So Carson McCuthers, who wrote... Oh, no Brother, Where Art Thou? That's one of my favorites. Uh, I like that. Carson McCuthers, who wrote No Time for Old Men, also wrote something about horses. What's in the title? The, what? All the Pretty Horses? I read that book recently because somebody said that I should, and I always do what I'm told. <laughs> and uh, it, was, it, it was beautifully written, but boy, it's dark. And that's what I, I was thinking about that. So what living person do you most admire? Well, uh, you know, I've thought several times about who I would like to have dinner with, have, have an opportunity to share a meal with, and uh, I, I think at the top of the list right now would be Barack Obama, and, and I don't mean that to be a political statement necessarily, but just uh, he is, represents so much history such a delightful person, a hopeful person in spite of everything, an intellectual person. He thinks deeply. He makes good decisions about difficult items. He's not perfect, but I think if I could choose somebody that's living today to have lunch with, 
uh, he'd be at the top. What's your most treasured possession? Inanimate. Now you can't say Sandy. Yeah, no, she's certainly not a possession, but. <laughs> um, you know, I guess. Can you can you say home? Uh huh. Love my home because you know lived in a parsonage, uh, all my ministry, and to have a home is a is a nice thing. We enjoy our home. So if you had to listen to one song for the rest of your life, what would it be? Uh, let's see. Well, I'm torn between some of the kind of outlaw country that I like to listen to and, and the great hymns of the church, which aren't that far apart, really, in some ways. They, they all talk about brokenness and healing. Uh, and uh, so uh, if, if I guess my favorite hymn is uh, not unlike many of you would be Come O Thou Traveler. Mm -hmm. Mine would be Lo He Comes With Clouds Descending. Yeah. I love that hymn. Yeah. Maybe you one of my favorites. So if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say to you when you arrive at the pearly gates? Oh, you know, I've, I've heard you tell that story about, uh, I think it's your story, about someone standing behind uh, Mother Teresa and uh, before St. Peter, and St. Peter just reams her out, says, uh, you know, you could have done more. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, That's what uh, you fear you That's what I, I don't want to hear, but... Um, you know, I just hope to hear a word of grace, I hope. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, if I had to answer that question, and I think this may be true for a lot of people here, about the living person that I most admire, it would be you. Oh. And, uh, well, you, you, have, uh, you have framed the questions in such a way to make me look good today. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, we as a community of faith. I, 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 I credit um, um, John Fellers with kind of setting the tone for the liturgical worship we have. And Wayne Day came in when the church really needed a vision. And you came and gave to, the sent, to this church this attitude of, of inclusion and acceptance and, and maybe more importantly, the sense of absolute integrity that you have brought and lived with. And um, certainly if you, I wouldn't be here. And I'm really grateful for your making that happen. And I love you and thank you for this time. Thank you for all you do, Bill. Yeah. Thank you. So no matter... Uh, what happens this week, no matter where you go, remember this, you carry precious cargo. So watch your step, and Holly and I will see you here next Sunday. <laughs>